You're listening to the New World Order, a podcast series from Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world. In Cairo, we heard the voice of the young mother who said, "It's like I can finally breathe fresh air for the first time." In Damascus, we heard the young man who said, "After the first yelling, the first shout, you feel dignity." Those shouts of human dignity are being heard across the region. And through the moral force of nonviolence, the people of the region have achieved more change in 6 months than terrorists have accomplished in decades. Welcome to the New World Order. I am your host, Deepika Vikram Singh. This week on the New World Order, we'll be taking a close look at the history of recent conflict in West Asia. When the Ottoman Empire was defeated by an Arab uprising and British Empire forces after the Sinai and Palestine campaign in 1918, the Arab population was rewarded with what many Islamic activists now consider to be the Anglo-French betrayal. The British and French governments had concluded a secret treaty, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, in order to partition West Asia between them, and additionally, the British. via the Balfour declaration had promised the international zionist movement their support in recreating the historic jewish homeland in palestine in palestine conflicting forces of arab nationalism and zionism created a situation that the british could neither resolve nor extricate themselves from similarly the rise to power of german dictator adolf hitler in the 1930s had created a new urgency in the zionist quest to immigrate to palestine and create a jewish state after world war 2 the british the french the soviets departed from many parts of west asia large tracts of west asia including nations like iran turkey saudi arabia and others were largely unaffected by world war 2 The struggle between the Arabs and the Jews in Palestine however culminated in 1947 with the United Nations plan to partition Palestine. This plan attempted to create an Arab state and a Jewish state in the narrow space between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. While the Jewish leaders accepted it, the Arab leaders rejected this plan. On the 14th of May 1948 when the British mandate officially expired, the Zionist leadership officially declared the state of Israel. and the subsequent 1948 Arab Israeli war which immediately followed the armies of Egypt Syria Transjordan Lebanon Iraq and Saudi Arabia intervened and were ultimately defeated by Israel about 800,000 Palestinians fled from areas annexed by Israel and became refugees in neighboring countries thus creating the Palestinian problem which has troubled the region ever since Approximately 2/3 of the Jews expelled or who fled from Arab lands after 1948 were absorbed and nationalized by the state of Israel. The decisive loss from the Muslim side during the 6-day war of 1967 resulted in many in the Islamic world to give up on Arab socialism. This represented a turning point where fundamental and militant Islam began to fill the political vacuum that was being created. In response to this challenge to its interests in the region, the United States felt obligated to defend its remaining allies, the conservative monarchies of Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Iran, and the Persian Gulf Emirates, whose methods of rule were almost as unattractive to western eyes as those of the anti-western regimes. Iran in particular became a key US ally until a revolution led by the Shia clergy 
overthrew the monarchy in 1979 and established a theocratic regime that was even more anti-Western than the secular regimes in Iraq or Syria. This forced the US into a close alliance with Saudi Arabia. Since then, much of the history of West Asia has been denoted by violence. The bloody regime of Saddam Hussein resulted in a war with Iran during the, in the 1980s and a subsequent conflict with Kuwait resulted in the Gulf War of 1990, which ultimately resulted in the United States to establish a permanent presence in the Persian Gulf region. The 2000s did not bring any more peace to the region as, in response to the devastating September 11 attacks on the United States, the US developed a plan to invade Iraq remove Saddam from power and turn Iraq into a democratic state with a free market economy, which they hoped would serve as a model for the rest of West Asia. The war on terror raged on with no end in sight, but starting in 2011, a wave of revolutions began to sweep across in the form of the Arab Spring, which brought about major protests, uprising and even revolutions in several nations across the region. And as you just heard from then-President Obama, change was brought about. However, the change was not consistent and the region is now far from being stable and peaceful. I'm joined now by Ambassador Neelam Deo, Director at Gateway House. Ambassador Deo, less than seven years ago, the Middle East along with West Asia was looked at as a hotbed of democratic change and progress under the Arab Spring. But today, uh, the, the image is very different. A military regime rules Egypt, uh, civil war has destabilized Syria, and an all-out war rages through Yemen. And of course, the scourge of ISIS is ever-present. What went wrong for the region? Well, I would say, say that, you know, perhaps the protests themselves, the depth of the protest was overhyped because, uh, uh, you know, the Western media particularly was very excited about the number of young people out, uh, the social media angle, etc. But I, I think that uh, all uh, protests, all revolutions, all rebellions are led by young people all over the world. And even the media angle, you know, in Tiananmen Square, it was factories. But before that, it used to be word of mouth, telephone. Messages get around, and that was heavily overhyped in the case of the Arab uh, uprisings. And also, you know, there, there was this other peculiarity here, that there, there had been Western-supported dictators in these countries for so long, Mubarak was there for more than 30 years in Egypt. They had destroyed all opposition. So there was no real opposition that could come in and actually administer, except for religious groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, which then came into power in Egypt. It was exactly like under communism. Everything except the church had been destroyed in Poland. And therefore, it was church-supported people who could form the next government. The other factors, I think, uh, relate to the greater democratization of the global order. You know, formerly, the United States would carry out regime change and put in place a successor. Uh, now, there are many divergent players. So, you know, Turkey and Saudi Arabia were very angry with the Americans for enabling the ouster of Mubarak but in Egypt, but there were other 
regimes. Russia, for example, uh, who or China also opposed uh, the Americans there because they do not want that sovereignty not be treated as a principle. But underlying everything was the fact that economic stagnation has continued, jobs are not available for young people, and therefore you had in Egypt not only that the Muslim Brotherhood formed a government, but then that it was also pushed out by protests which were maybe even larger than the protests that had originally pushed uh, the um, uh, Mubarak regime uh, out. And finally, there is one factor which we all tend to overplay, which is that the United States is now self-sufficient in oil and gas because of the shale uh, uh, revolution in the U.S. But the oil majors, the big American and Western companies, <coughs> continue to own a lot of oil assets in the Arab world, and they are very deeply implicated in everything that uh, happens there. So the government may be less interested, but uh, the oil majors are not less interested. And of course, in this situation of economic stagnation, it is not surprising that there will be young people who will opt for extreme ideologies so that there is a ready-made uh, sort of cadre available for organizations like Al-Qaeda or ISIS to uh, take hold. And the fact that there are so many players now, there are uh, differing agendas, contradictory agendas, uh, you will end up with situations like those Arab countries which oppose Arab, uh, ISIS, those Arab countries which have actually even provided some funds and you know somehow enabled an organization like that, as they had done with Al-Qaeda in the past because of Sunni grievances, especially in uh, Iraq. So you have a mix of uh, agendas here. You know, Turkey supports the fight against ISIS, but does not support the involvement of the Kurdish groups in fighting ISIS. That goes against what the Americans are trying to do, who find that the Kurdish groups are the most effective fighters. So the, the whole situation has become much more complex just simply because of the fact that there are many more important and powerful players pursuing an agenda. And then, of course, Russia is back in full. It not only supports Assad, but it works with Iran to fight uh, ISIS. Iran is probably the strongest uh, uh, in terms of the opposition to ISIS. Uh, so the Middle East has its own countries uh, and governments fighting against each other. And on top of that, of course, there is now a sort of proxy war between the United States and, uh, and Russia uh, going on as well. But even within ISIS and the other terrorist groups, they also have competing agendas. Ambassador, I want to pick up and highlight on one issue which you've mentioned specifically, which is the Syrian civil war. Now, this war has been active since 2011, but despite a tremendous amount of international focus, the international community and bodies like the United Nations as well have really failed to defuse this conflict. Um, if there was one thing which could have been done to change this, to, to help defuse the conflict, what do you think it could have been? You know, 
this is a very difficult question to answer when you are in the middle of a conflict. It is sort of uh, the the best way to have gone was to not have the West go in and first they uh, supported the opposition to Assad, who had overreacted to a spontaneous opposition uh, and uh, used uh, excess force. But that is not enough reason to try for regime change, which is what the Western powers began to aim for immediately. Um, so it's difficult to say what what can be done now, now that it has become a full-blown conflict with superpowers, regional powers, different terrorist groups, all with competing uh, agendas. Uh, one can only say that the United Nations is, of course, set up to fail because while we, under the Obama administration, his Secretary of State, Kerry, worked closely with the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov to try to work, go towards at least a ceasefire. But uh, now that you have uh, uh, President Trump uh, shooting off, uh, you know, almost 60 cruise missiles, the Russians will also feel obliged uh, to react. Though so far their public response has been fairly uh, muted. There isn't a single uh, silver bullet to end this civil war, but certainly some kind of agreement between the United States and Russia would help. It would also help because, as Trump had talked about during his uh, campaign, they could then work together to uh, uh, contain and to destroy ISIS, even if, as many analysts say all the time, you can destroy the organization, but you will not be able to destroy the ideas and the conditions which uh, provide the impetus for an organization like, uh, like ISIS. Ambassador, you've just mentioned the missile strikes launched by the United States government, uh, which seemed at the time to be a reversal of its stance towards Syria. Um, this is not the first time that this has happened. There have been several reversals and sometimes contradictions of policies from the United States, all of which, which have a large impact uh, for the region. But specifically, how do these decisions uh, these contradictions and reversals, how do these impact groups which are actively fighting on the ground? Very uh, complicated and actually there is this big argument going on in the United States itself and in other capitals on what was the meaning of the strike. Whereas everyone can understand and sympathize with the revulsion that a chemical weapons attack causes and the kind of suffering particularly for children because their bodies are smaller and unable to absorb the impact of chemical weapons uh, causes. So there is, there is widespread sympathy, but there are differing opinions on who launched that strike, the chemical weapons strike. And then, of course, there is an argument uh, on whether the strikes that were launched by the U.S. administration have actually been effective because within 24 hours, Syrian uh, Air Force aircraft were taking off from the same airfield. Was this a one-off, uh, as they say, or is this going to be followed up with more activity on the ground? At this moment, nobody knows, simply because this is the way Trump operates, uh, by impulse. So what 
the U.S. policy itself has been a confusing mix of issuing threats uh, and also saying that they are arming and training the moderate opposition. But it's well known that a $500 million project for, of the Obama administration ended up with just 10 moderate opposition fighters. All the rest either just melt away, join some other organization, sell off the weapons, and uh, some, some may even have joined uh, ISIS uh, itself. But the complications for the United States also are that its allies, including a NATO ally like Turkey, is pursuing a different agenda on the ground uh, while allowing uh, an airbase in Chile to be used for attacks against uh, ISIS. And it is not as if the United States is not already there. There have been, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of uh, air sorties already. Similarly, Russia is using its air force. So there, there is a complex situation here. And the hope is that there will not somehow be a repeat of the kind of uh, uh, incident that took place when Turkey shot down a Russian aircraft, possibly with wrong, uh, inf wrong intelligence applied to it. But the, every country's policies here are confusing except the Syrian regime works for its continued survival, and Russia has military assets which it hopes to protect. And Syria's location as the point from which gas from Qatar can flow to Europe is itself a strong impetus for Russia, which is the bigger supplier of gas to Europe, uh, to continue to support Assad so that Middle Eastern gas does not use Russia. It does not use uh, Syria as the point from which gas can go. Uh, Ambassador, as you as you clearly illustrated, there's a tremendous amount of chaos and uncertainty that we're seeing in Syria. However, what's more concerning is this, as you as you sort of illustrated, the geostrategic game which is being played out in the region between major countries like the United States and Russia. Uh, which have either influenced matters directly through airstrikes or missile strikes that as we've seen recently, or they've been using their regional allies like Saudi Arabia and Iran um, to support opposing forces. Now, how do you envision this this kind of a geostrategic game playing out in the Syrian arena? You know, on the ground in Syria, the ones who are actually doing the fighting are either Iranian, from their uh, revolutionary guards, or they are Syrian Kurds, uh, whom Turkey opposes. Um, and the Iranian fighters are opposed by the Saudis. So what is happening is that, it, yeah, it, it, there is a sort of contest here between the US and Russia. There is a contest here between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But on the ground are uh, these fighters. There is a mythical moderate opposition whom the West says it wants to support. But uh, that mythical opposition mostly lives abroad. They live in, uh, in uh, Europe. And they're not there on the ground, and therefore they have hardly any support on the ground itself. Uh, Turkey is being destroyed uh, as uh, in the geography that had emerged from the end uh, of World War I and World War II and the Sykes-Picot 
uh, pact between uh, the UK and France, it will probably uh, de fact become de facto like Iraq into three parts. You know, the, the along the Mediterranean coast, which Assad uh, continues, the present Syrian government continues to control. There is a Kurdish uh, strip which is becoming more and more autonomous, as happened in the case of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. And then there is the rest which will be probably uh, governed, or governed is probably the wrong word, but which will probably be controlled by various uh, uh, Sunni uh, warlords. Now, in actual fact, this was not a sectarian conflict, that, but uh, the, those are the categories that get imposed on uh, conflicts of this nature. I think in the end, Israel, has, and it has already made some moves, will keep the Golan Heights. Uh, Islamic fundamentalist groups will mark out their own territory, especially in the Sunni parts, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it will... It, Syria will become also a kind of combination of a failed state or an un, uh, with ungoverned and ungovernable uh, territories to the benefit of no one uh, in the region except uh, Israel, whose uh, security gets more and more assured as there is more and more chaos in the Arab countries around it, especially those like Syria, which had been in the opposition, unlike Jordan which has been supportive of peace with Israel. Ambassador, you've touched upon the role that Israel has had in this in this region, but what about the role of China? Now, through the Belt and Road Initiative, they have been uh, uh, making economic advances into West Asia. We've seen this in um, in Iran. But are they mere bystanders in, in the conflict regions? Are they playing a part? How is this working? Well, you know, China has been consistent uh, on the Syrian uh, uh, issue, but also on other issues, that the international community must respect the sovereignty of an incumbent government. So to that extent, uh, China does support the Assad regime diplomatically and politically. It has voted along with Russia against the Western bloc in the UN Security Council because the Western country, mainly the resolutions that are formulated by the UK and France, are clothed in human rights terms and in talking about the provision of humanitarian aid. But in fact, they are for geopolitical gains on the ground. And China has gone along with Russia to vote against them. But at the same time, of course, China has also uh, is scouting the region for future economic uh, prospects, and it has strengthened its relationship and its investments into both Iran and Saudi Arabia, who are on opposite sides of the conflict in Syria. But they also, both governments, see the value of a good relationship with what is becoming the largest economy in the world. And I would imagine that China is selling arms to everybody in this conflict. Either its own companies are there selling the arms, or its arms are being sold by the many arms merchants uh, that have been living in this region for a very long time. Uh, Ambassador, would it be safe to say that we're seeing a similar situation of a geostrategic power struggle being played out in Yemen, specifically with the major roles being taken on by Saudi Arabia and Iran? You know, Yemen is in many ways too poor to interest any uh, uh, 
big uh, involvement by the big powers. Uh, but it has a very long border with Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is very interested uh, and always very involved in what happens uh, in uh, Yemen. So for a long time, Saudi Arabia had uh, supported uh, Saleh as a dictator of the unified uh, Yemen. Uh, it, the, the, the issue in uh, uh, Yemen started with a spontaneous uh, revolt again by the Houthis, and for which is a, a clan, but somewhat separate from others clans living in uh, Yemen. And the Houthis are also uh, apparently uh, in their religious practices. Now they are being called uh, Iranians, but they have a kind of mix of Sunni and, uh, and Shia uh, Islamic uh, uh, orientations. But uh, they, uh, they rose up against Saleh, but when another government was formed with Saudi support, after some time, Saleh was able to form a rapprochement with the Houthis, and now together they are opposed to the Hadi government, which has the support of the Saudis, and which in fact is the reason the Saudis claim that they want to return the lawful government led by uh, Hadi. In this case, uh, Iran began to offer some assistance to the Houthis, but much later. The United States, on the other hand, is using, is uh, involved in this conflict in the sense that it has announced under the Obama administration that it will share it, provide intelligence to the Saudi airports for the uh, attacks that it has uh, undertaken in Yemen. And, you know, this is, a, the Houthis have very basic armaments. To be shooting at them from the air uh, is not surprising because Saudi Arabia is unlikely to field boots on the ground either. But uh, the United States has also been using uh, drone strikes in Yemen, supposedly against uh, the local Al-Qaeda. So there is a major power struggle on underway in Yemen. It's confusing. There are uh, many players again, but much less number of players than in Syria. Uh, but the, the West has tried to give this conflict also a religious coloring and try to make it sound like uh, a Sunni-Shia conflict, when in fact these are power struggles. Uh, and sometimes ethnicities do get involved, like the Houthis are one group. Uh, but this is not, uh, these are not religious wars. These are wars for power. And here again, the solution could come more easily than in the case of Syria, if the United States and Saudi Arabia were in fact to look for a resolution. Ambassador Leo, that's unfortunately all the time that we have for this episode. In the next episode, we'll be taking the discussion on West Asia further as we'll be taking a closer look at Turkey's role, especially after the, the much-anticipated referendum which is set to be held on April 16, 2017. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The New World Order. If you like the show, please like, rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Have a question for the next episode? Tweet it to us at gatewayhouse.ind.
You've been listening to The New World Order, a podcast series by Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world.